everybody, welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. A little different twist on the episode today. Sat down and did a thing with Max Gagliardi. We chatted, whether I'm on his podcast, he's on mine. I don't know if we can really tell the difference, but we chatted. Got a lot of industry stuff going on. Also talked a lot of the bowels of private equity. How management fees are paid, truth behind smash codes and the like. Also talk podcasting. So good episode. Give it a listen. Peace out. I, 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 Yeah, I'm sitting here looking at this picture. I look fat. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm not actually this large in real life. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, what do they say the camera adds? How many pounds? At least 25. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> 25, 30. Uh, we're here. By the way, you're yeah. Ethiopian level skinny. Just just nah, for the audience. Just yeah. for the audience, yeah. Um, trying, Chuck. I'm fighting the good fight here in my 30s. It's not gotten as easy as it used to be. Oh, dude, hit 52, man. It's brutal. <laughs> uh yeah, it's one of those things I've noticed that like I do the same stuff that I used to do, but it like the output, the inputs are the same. If you do the same inputs, you're not getting the same output in terms of the way you look. It's like you used to be able to just like crush a whole pizza or something and you're like okay with it. Now you crush a whole pizza and like you gain a chin. Like you see it the next day, like it's, in the mirror. I mean, just your metabolism, if you eat exactly the same thing every day for 30 years, and that is, you know, what would keep you at zero. Right. You know, when you started that 30 years later, you've put on 30 pounds. That's how, that's how much your metabolism slows. Yeah. It's depressing, Chuck. It means we're going to have to eat a lot less things and, uh, or get better filters for the, yeah, uh, we need those filters. I don't know how to do the airbrush thing. I just, yeah, just, just don't make just me raw. a cat. That's the, <laughs> is that um, like going to be the most pathetic thing from our generation? cat filters those are ridiculous i don't know man like you know what's weird to me is like selfies uh growing up like we had basically i mean you're even different than me but like even when i was younger like selfies weren't popular like if you got caught like we had like the little wind-up cameras right oh yeah you take a you know maybe you take a picture of yourself with that if your friends caught you doing that or found a selfie of you you would have been made fun of so hard like oh my gosh you took a picture of yourself you were a loser now it's just like Everybody takes selfies. It's like the most popular thing. And I just, it's hard to wrap my head around. I, I just would have been, I came from a different time where you would have been highly ridiculed for taking pictures of yourself. But now this is like a very popular Dude, thing. Dude, I can hear like do. Bruce Springsteen's glory days going on in the back there. <laughs> glory days. You're not that old, man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but with technology, I feel old sometimes, right? It's like things have changed quickly. I know. I mean, my, uh, my daughter is older than the, or, uh, I think all three of my daughters are older than uh, the iPhone. That's which wild. is kind of yeah, it's crazy. That is wild. So, summer nape, we're here. This we are. Uh, it's a little bit dead. I'm not gonna lie. I was out on. I went out today. I always regret like getting a ticket for the floor. I'm always like, I shouldn't do that again. And then I end up doing it. So right. I'm like, yeah, I want to go and see what's up. And man, this year it was like a little sad. I was down there. There's just not much going on. So if kind of baseline, what, a third of people there, a quarter, half? What, it, no, I, what does I, sad I, mean? Well, what was sad to me was that the, not necessarily even just the lack of people. It was just the lack of booths. And like usually like down that center corridor. Uh-oh. We got, we got some uh, whatever that means. Hold on. 
Dude, you really shouldn't be listening, watching porn while we're trying to record this podcast. But I would say that like the main thing was that like that center corridor is usually like where, you know, some of the bigger companies or bigger names have their booths. You got some big booths. It's usually like a lot of traffic down that corridor and just a lot of empty real estate, like down that center area. There's just no big booths. And then you had like even, I mean, I don't know that I saw any of the majors, even the large independents. I didn't see hardly any big booths. I mean, it was just kind of dead. And then when you coupled that empty space on the middle with just nobody there, probably a third or 25% of the people, it just felt like uh, we're not back yet. I feel like yeah. we're back, but it doesn't feel like we're back yet when I go to that. Now, do you think that was, you know, we're not back yet, or is that just the COVID bounce? I, it's probably both. I mean, okay. I think the COVID thing's freaking people out, you know? Um, I mean, if you are vaccinated, your chances are really low, but people that are vaccinated are freaked out. There's a lot of media, like, just scared stuff. That Every time you get on the media, it's just like, you click off of it feeling like less safe like when you look yeah, at stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, we can't have that big a second wave here because if you think about it, I mean, what have there been, 35 million confirmed cases? Right. And let's just say there's been 2X that because we all know right. people that never got yeah. tested, but clearly it had it. So that's 70 out of, you know, 330 right. uh, million Americans. So, you know, let's let's say that's 10% and then, you know, 50% of us have gotten vaccinated. Right. Uh, you know, at some point, I mean, they're just running out of people because I don't... I know everybody says, oh, you can get it twice. I know such and such as cousins, friends, cousins, girlfriend had it right, twice. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, if we could get it twice, we'd see a lot more of it. Yeah. You yeah. know? Well, it's a uh, something that is definitely going to dominate the energy stuff. I mean, look at oil has been down again now. I think the Delta stuff is weighing on that. Uh, this conference has been down. I think that the Delta stuff's weighing on that. But, you know, Beyond that, to move away from the COVID topic a little bit, let's just go into what I want to talk to you about mainly is just about capital, private capital and energy. It's something that you have a lot of background in. We've raised private equity in the past with one of our companies. We've, <laughs> so uh, this is a short, a short podcast because uh, there is well, none. I mean, yeah, right. right. You know, exactly. Unfortunately, there is none next. What yeah. are we talk about? Well, I mean, there's some, but like even with the capital that's out there, I don't know what the objectives are of that capital. I mean, it's like, Guys have to raise money and deploy money to be able to, uh, you know, to survive in the private equity world. And guys are having problem, problems raising it. But even the guys that have raised it, I think they're having problems deploying it. Just uh, Yeah, no, I think I think you got kind of two things and then we'll roll into a history lesson on that. Okay. You obviously have a red problem. I mean, we just lost a ton of money over the last 10, 15 years. Yes. No question. Um, then the second thing you've got that I think is more real today than even folks that acknowledge that it's real, but it's the green problem. I mean, you truly yeah. have institutions that have said, if anything is a furtherance of a hydrocarbon, either making it cheaper, more efficient, whatever the case may be, or actually, God forbid, drilling for a hydrocarbon, They'll stop investing in it. So, I mean, you you truly have pools of capital that are off limits to oil and gas kind of for the first time. So we've got the red problem. We've got the green problem. And just to kind of put that in the context of history so, so folks appreciate this, you know, in the late 90s when Ken Hirsch was 
fundraising for early natural gas partners funds. And you had the NCAP guys doing mezzanine uh, in the late 90s and raising money for it. You walked into an institution and you met with their private capital bucket. Yeah. And that person did LBOs, buyouts, venture capital, anything private capital related. So you had to go in and say, this is energy. This is why it's an attractive area to, right. to invest in, et cetera. Then call it 2005, 2010 in there. You got to the point where most of these institutions had created an asset class called real assets. And generally in there, you had energy, you had real estate, you had timber, stuff like that. And when you walked in to talk to that person, what happened is not what is energy, is it good or bad? It was why Kane Anderson versus Natural Gas Partners or NCAP. It was much more that discussion. What What's your strategy in this right. area and how right. do you compare and contrast to the uh, to the other folks? And so for a good run there, 10, 10-ish, 15 years, it was just an asset class yeah. and, and institutions were dedicated there. I think that that, that day's gone now. You've seen... Uh, slowly people drawing back their allocations towards energy and it's happening, I believe today, but certainly it's the future. When you walk back in, you're talking to a private capital person right. who's comparing energy to buyout venture and the like. So it's going to be tough sledding because uh, generally these institutions look historically five years, right, wrong or indifferent. That's just the way they do. So when you walk in there, here's my last five years of performance. It's going to yeah, be tough, right. particularly because buyout and venture and others have just been on fire. Yeah. Yeah, it's tough. But I mean, it's like, do we need a lot of capital in the energy space? And so I know that there's the green. You talked about the red and the green. The red has been, you know, there's periods of the red throughout, right? I mean, it's a cyclical business. So I'm sure there are other times if you look at five-year windows maybe not as dramatic or as bad as the last five-year window, but there's times where it's cyclical. Uh, so you have that, and it's always something you battle against, I'm sure, in the energy space. But then you couple that with the green problem, and now you really, for example, like you've got Larry Fink coming out last week with his letter, and I've talked about this on the pod, and he's saying we have to just completely move away from any oil and gas investment. Everything has to be ESG and green. And like, let's just face it, like, you know, every Tesla has 800 pounds of plastic in it, right? Like, right. And everything has oil and gas. So this idea that we can just starve capital from traditional energy, and I'll call traditional energy, oil and gas, um, and then that'll solve the problems. Like, I think that's going to create some problems. But, and again, like, I mean, that's, that's not like a hot take, right? Like you starve capital, it's going to make those markets, uh, the prices are going to go up, guys are going to struggle to get projects done. And this, I think, in some ways may make it uh, harder to transition the energy transition because I don't think things are very efficient when you're just starving capital and that's your main goal. Yeah, no, I, I think I think if you look back, I mean, what was the problem with, with price, i.e. why did prices fall so low? And it was the U.S. going from peak production in 1970 or 1972 to call it, you know, 2007 2008 of reversing the trend and in effect doubling production right that's supply demand more supply right, right. prices went prices went down right well um what was interesting is that happened in the united states 
at the same time, there was beginning to be a belief that Saudi Arabia had certain, certainly peaked. You had Matt Simmons' book, Twilight in the Desert. Right. You just look at the number of rigs the Saudis were running. Call it, you know, historically they ran 50 rigs a year during yeah. kind of 2015 to 2018, somewhere in there. They were running 150 rigs. So if they truly had all yeah. this excess capacity, right. they'd put it on. Venezuela is a shit show. The Russians have been more resilient than I thought we were, uh, than they were going to be able to be. But you truly are kind of running out of, uh, of economic oil. And, you know, at the end of the day, you and I both know it's not that you run out of oil. You just run out of oil at that price. Yeah. And, right. and so, yeah, no, it's, if we're going to put a stranglehold on the U S business through, you know, regulations, not building pipelines, banning drilling on, on federal leases and all, Oil's got to come from somewhere because Leonardo's not stopping flying his private plane, right? No way. No, he's not. Well, we talk about this a lot, and it's like we can look at the ESG theme. You think about uh, the, it's really, it's mainly E, I think. And I've been, I've even tweeted one time, I think they're going to drop the SG at some point because it's not social and it's not governance to outsource your energy from countries like OPEC, right? Like they don't, there's not basic human rights there. Women don't have the same rights. LGBTQ don't have the same rights. So when Gavin Newsom says we're going to stop fracking completely in California and they're importing their oil from uh, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, uh, these other countries that don't have governance, they don't have social norms that we have here. They not don't the have, nicest folks on the planet, are they? Yeah. I, I mean, they're not. I would hate to say that. I don't know that I could go as far as say enemies, but they're at best frenemies, right? Yeah. Like, at best yeah. frenemies. They're not not leading the cheerleading squad for Go America. No. And so when you say that we're going to go green and that means we're going to stop, you know, the cleanest oil fields probably in the world in California, they have some of the strictest regulations. These oil fields are very clean. Uh, And then we're going to outsource it from the dirty. That's just offshoring carbon. And that's a theme I've talked about. It just bothers me. And this is where I get a little cynical with ESG. It's like if the goals, if we want to meet the goals that we want to meet, let's talk about realistic ways to do those goals. And it just seems like the things that are going to push forward like uh, going all EV. It sounds great. Well, where are those minerals and where are these rare earths and where are these things going to come from? We don't, you know, there's an irony there that we can't produce the mining materials we need in the U.S. because they're too dirty to do that. But we got to go green by going to all these mining materials. We can't even make them here. We can't even mine them here because the permitting is too restrictive because it's dirty. So I've done back of the envelope math on it. I probably ought to put real pen to paper (laughs) and come up with it. But, you know, you're not in the middle of these places mining these rare minerals by plugging into an electric socket, no, right? I mean, it all runs off diesel. Right. And uh, I think very back of the envelope, what you lose in gasoline consumption on EV cars is made up for by the diesel you spend mining those rare, right. m- rare earth minerals. And so, I mean, to think, you know, that's going to cause a problem with oil demand in the future is just foolhardy. Right. Right. Yeah. It, no, that's exactly right. And the other thing is that, uh, you know, I, what I like to say about electrification is that it's a, it's convenient, but it's not efficient. So electrifying everything, it's just hard to do. I mean, electricity to get, you know, to generate power, to get it on the grid, you're losing a ton of that. I, mean, I don't know. I've seen estimates, and I don't don't hold me to this, but sixty to seventy percent of energy is lost just from the production of it 
you know, think about for gas, we'll pick on gas. That's what I, my background is in midstream. It's like you got compressor fuel, you got line loss, you got to get it to a plant. There's emissions at the plant. The plant has to process it. Then you've got to get it on a downstream pipeline that goes to some, that's got fuel. That's got line loss. You get to a power plant. They got to generate power, gets on the grid. You're losing 15 to 30% of the energy's loss moving it across the grid. You plug in the Tesla. I read the other day that Tesla's lose about 5% of their charge just idling. So you're losing just when they're sitting there, they're, you know, they got the century mode or whatever, they're losing power. So you start to look at the hill that we have to climb, just it gets back to the steam around efficiency. It's like, if you're starting, ask a good engineer, I'm not an engineer, but ask a good engineer and say, here's a problem you got to solve. And on this one side, you start off at minus 70% efficiency to get to the same end result as carrying the fuel to the, to the car. And, you know, just like you can store that energy in the fuel. Like there's some energy to get gasoline, obviously refined, but that engineer will probably tell you that's a hard problem to solve, but we're glossing over like it's just really easy to electrify everything. Uh, it's just kind of a head scratcher to me. Yeah, no, my pet peeve, and we were talking about this earlier, are wind turbines, right? Because the amount of energy it takes to yeah. build a wind turbine, ship it over from China to the United States, install it, is about the same amount of energy it's going to produce over its lifetime. Right. And so if you think about that, what is being what is powering the energy in China? It's a bunch of coal. Right. So we're basically exporting Chinese coal to the United States with tax subsidies. Yeah. You know, and the and reason killing a shitload of birds, yeah, right? Birds, I mean, dude. Yeah, for sure. Now, I mean, if you think about like the other thing too is if you look at expensive energy or just expensive things in general why are things expensive they're expensive why are ev cars more expensive they're expensive because of the man hours it takes or the labor that it takes to build that some people could argue that labor and man hours directly correlate to um i don't know about emissions but it correlates to impact right like right. if something's more expensive you probably had to have a bigger impact to create that thing than something that's less expensive so just intuitively it's like if this thing's more expensive it's probably less efficient because it took more man hours to create it than this other thing that you could create uh, or the other thing, if you look at efficiency, think about the land use for wind and solar. So much land use versus a natural gas Christmas tree that sticks out of the ground. Um, you can look at the land use involved there versus the land use for the same amount of energy for solar or wind. It's just like it gets back to efficiency. It's not all that efficient. And so I think there will be a mix. And I've said this before, but um, this idea, getting back to the capital side, that we can just starve capital on one hand for oil and gas and we can shove a bunch of capital to these other technologies that in a lot of ways are less efficient. I don't think that's probably the right approach. And as it's impacting what I've done and what you've historically done, which is the energy industry, oil and gas industry, I'm seeing private equity groups and we're talking to them about what they're trying to target, what they're trying to do. And it feels a little rudderless right now. Even the guys that have money, it's like they're getting a mandate to decarbonize on one hand, but then the same hand, like the, on the other side, they, their backgrounds, oil and gas. I mean, how did would it? I know you're out of it now, but how does it feel to be those guys right now? <laughs> well, I used to always joke with LPs, "Hey, when you don't feel like giving me the money, that's when you should give me the money." Right. And when you feel like, "Oh man, I need way more oil exposure," here's a big checkbook. Yeah, that's always the time you shouldn't give right. give money out because I mean that's kind of the classic bubble. I did a talk for Hearts. Uh, I want to say last January where I went through in shale and basically said it was a bubble and compared it to the railroads in Great Britain in the 1850s and the tulips and these other bubbles in history. Well, 
clean energy is the next bubble. I yeah, mean, right? right. We're going to have, because it is a tidal wave. I had Pickering, Dan Pickering on the podcast, and these are really his words as opposed to mine. But, you know, Pickering says it's a tidal wave. It's being driven not by government regulation, but by consumers, investors, right. companies that truly want less carbon. So the money's going to get invested and it's going to happen because of that. But you can't tell me any money's going to be made off that. I mean, it's going to be tough. I mean, there's just not a lot to chase, really. Like, at the end of the day, like, what can you chase? I mean, the uh, cost of capital is getting pushed down so low on these renewables projects. It's like a toll road type. Yeah, um, let's go ahead and take the subsidies out of them, see what happens. Yeah, yeah no joke. Well, then you look at, like, carbon capture, because I have a more of a midstream background, and it's all predicated on you know, tax code right now with these 45 Qs. And it's like, well, that can change, you know, like, how do I do a 30 year project off of credits that only go for this time period? And then we could get a new administration. And, uh, and I made that point to somebody and they were like, uh, I actually, I think it's Pickering potentially that I brought that up to. And he said, there is no, he didn't see any political risk with those credits. He goes, he's like, Oh, hell you just go buy you another Congressman. (laughs) (laughs) It ain't hard. He basically just said that the, it, that the page has already turned. And that we're past this point, uh, this inflection point to where we're not going to go back to where the sentiment could change. And I think that people paying more at the pump, people paying more to heat and cool their homes, like that can change sentiment. I mean, it can. Like when that becomes a bigger chunk of somebody's, uh, you know, every month, if you have $1,000 of discretionary income and you're now spending $300 or $400 of that on gasoline to fill your car up versus a couple hundred bucks, like that's material for people. And so... I just don't know that pocketbooks like that we can just say, look, it's not going to matter the impacts that this have in terms of fiscally on people that that the sentiment's going to carry it. Like, I think that there has to be efficiency because if there's not efficiency and it rolls through to people's pocketbooks, I think sentiment could change potentially. And it's, you know, it's a number you see calculated. I mean, how often do you fill up your car once, twice a week? Right. You see literally it's spin right in front of you. It is daily. It's, you know, yeah. it's whatever, $3 and nine cents tomorrow. It's $3 and 12 cents. So right. I, I do think, I do think of all the things that potentially could have an impact. And we, and I've talked a lot about them on the podcast, you know, can we get the other side, the environmentalists to trust us? Cause that seems to me to be the big issue is just the two sides don't trust each other. Right. Um, I actually don't think the environmentalists think that burning hydrocarbons is necessarily that bad a thing. They recognize the tangible benefit of it. It's just, hey, y'all are bad actors. We don't trust you. Hey, you're telling everybody the world's going to end in 10 years. We don't think you. But so I do think if 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 trust somehow got built, you could have a more fruitful discussion and do things like. Hey, wind power, guys, it's just not going to happen unless we start building it off solar panels, you know, and and that may happen. But no, you're right. I mean, if somebody suddenly paying seven, eight dollars a gallon for gasoline, then it becomes real. Right. It can change behavior for sure. And uh, people just things like this is the marketing battle has been won by the green side i mean just the fact that we're using the word clean and green i mean everything has an impact and this is again things i've talked about before it's like nothing's truly clean nothing's truly uh has no impact and so when you talk to money on the capital side we've had some interesting conversations because we've looked at projects or things or investments where uh we were reducing impact 
and by impact, a lot of times that's emissions, um, scope one, particularly in the oil field, some different like ideas or some different investment themes. We also looked at some companies that were pitching and uh, had some really cool technology around recycling or around, you know, cleaning things up in the oil field. And you socialize some of these concepts with certain money groups that have historically been, and I buy money groups, I mean, private equity groups that have historically been very much in either midstream or upstream. And they say some of them are open to that. They like that because they could probably roll it into an existing fund that can still do oil and gas investments. Others that have raised new capital say, no, that is perpetuating carbon and that that is, uh, it's greenwashing. And it's like, but I can reduce more scope one emissions than Tesla if I switch everything to electric compression in the Permian. And they're like, yeah, but that's perpetuating carbon. And it's like, well, that oil is going to get produced or here or somebody somewhere else in theory. So right. it's, this that's where it breaks that's down for my me. line of there's not a peeing and non-peeing section right. of the pool <laughs> right. you know i mean right. if we produce if we produce the oil in saudi arabia instead of here guess what you still peed in the pool right so it's like that's where it starts to get for me it's like well you're stepping you're walking away from quick wins that could actually decarbonize and get us further towards the goals you're pushing those away and it's this not in my backyard deal right it's the well it's not, we won't have it here. We'll have it somewhere else. And so that's the part that's difficult. And, you know, I just think that, I don't know. I don't know what these private equity capital guys are going to do. They got to figure out a way to have a productive conversation where they can deploy capital into things that do have efficiency gains and aren't just these sweeping wholesale changes. Cause I don't think the wholesale changes are easy to enact. Yeah. You know, I think the one thing that private equity and we can even broadly say it energy investing kind of always had is you always had in your hip hop hip pocket what i'll call the bad thing so yeah, right. a bomb goes off somewhere something uncertainty whatever that case may be boom prices spike in one way shape or form and prices going up the investment runs if an investor is disciplined and sells those spikes, they could always make money and you can almost make money despite yourself being right. a, an energy investor. And the one thing the shell revolution did right, wrong or indifferent, and we can all debate this going forward. Um, and I have a tendency to think this is not true, but the investing community believes it. you know, there's a $60 cap on the price of oil forever. I mean that right? You look at it at the future strip. You got three or four years. It's under sixty bucks. You said the investment community believes that. Yeah, the investment that? committee yeah. believes uh, community believes that. Um, and so because of that, that whole we need to have some energy just in case something bad happens and price spikes. They don't think they need that anymore. Right. Right. Because because uh, oil, you know, it's almost we're been a, we're a product of being too good at producing energy yeah, for right. for too cheap so if you were and we'll talk about some of the other aspects with the private equity some of the other issues that these that's been going on in this space but if you're you know an entrepreneur right now let's say you wind back the clock in your career call it 20 15 years ago and let's say that you had great ideas or great prospects and let's say you were either a geologist or maybe you're a smart business development guy or you know whatever you may be and you have aspirations to go do entrepreneurial things in the oil field are you looking to traditional private equity at this point or are you trying to go family office or are you trying to go friends and are you trying to raise separate things on your own i mean what advice do you give to somebody who is a savvy entrepreneur has great ideas but that historically has gone directly to like a private equity played the traditional route right. like if it's you like well, how are you thinking about the world 
uh, you know, because I kind of get that question every day. Somebody will DM, message right. me through LinkedIn and want to have a chat about it. Should I stay in this business? Right. And I always say, if you think things are going to revert back to the mean, like you're going to go get a $500 million commitment from NCAP and they're going to give you a $5 million G&A budget right. to go look right. for deals. If you're thinking that's going to happen, get out because yeah. it's not. Right. And so... You know, the the way to look at things today, I think, are can you bootstrap in yeah. some way, shape, or form? Is it you and a partner and, you know, y'all buy cheap wells and you go find an o- overlooked area and, and buy it up and piece it together and every dollar you get put back in the ground? Whole host of, uh, of bootstrapping. If you want professional capital, i.e. one of the private equity guys, I truly think you have to, number one, have a deal. Two, you have to have a badass team, um, a really good team that can demonstrate it's made money. And three, you have to have something that is different. I mean, you have to be able to say, and and I think there's a real opportunity here with technology because, you know, we're starting to use artificial intelligence to monitor pumps and other lifting type um, endeavors out in the oil field. Right. I mean, I think if you walked into a private equity guy and say, Hey, we've used artificial intelligence on these pumps. We've figured out that these are the correct algorithms to be using and look at the efficiency gains. And we're the only folks doing this in XYZ basin. I think that's something real that could attract capital, but there's gotta be a differentiator like that and returns that you anticipate generating have to be higher than historically they were. Yeah. That's why you haven't seen much in the way of of M&A activity except for kind of the merge and merge and take stock type stuff is because I think the folks financing the buy side have said, "Hey, we need greater returns and oh by the way, we don't we're not going to give you credit that a price spike might happen." Right. And you know, sellers are sitting there saying, "No, no, no, you should pay PDP PV10 and then PUD PV20 for my uh locations and it's just not right you know yeah what uh you know if you think about it sometimes these we have the conversations with private equity and the narrative is what you've just said which is uh we don't want to do gna backed deals we don't want to back a team you know it's funny five years ago it was like we care about people we care about good teams you know we we were chasing all those same teams right right so and that so that's that was the narrative and then now the narrative has become we really don't want to fund teams in fact you're even seeing private equity groups just buy assets and be like we're going to manage it like i've heard rumors of guys just saying we're just going to buy stuff and it's like yeah. uh and so then as a team you look at that and you say well there are groups and we have relationships with groups that could get you know a pitch deck in front of 500 lps like they say hey look this is what we do we're in boutique investment guys we can get your pitch in front of 500 lps you talk to endowments or you talk to some of these groups uh pension funds and then they're even saying hey if you have something bring it directly to us and so and i know that there's issues with that that's why private equity's done a good job managing those relationships i'm not saying it's a walk in the park but what is the purpose then of private equity groups if they're not backing teams and they're not investing in ideas and they're just doing direct invests into projects doesn't that kind of take away what the, I mean, I thought the point was to kind of try to find the right guys and to harvest these, you know, innovative people and to empower them with capital in terms of the GNA capital. It just seems to me, I don't see a lot of differentiation between the pension fund now and the private equity group. It's like, if, well, the pension fund doesn't want to fund GNA either. They just want to direct invest. You're saying this, you're saying the same thing that the pension fund's saying. You guys both have the same 
pitch, right? And right. so as somebody trying to raise money, you're like, why do I? And by the way, the terms are worse with private equity than you could if you went directly to the LPs. So I just, it feels a little weird. I just don't understand where their niche is at right now. Best thing that ever happened to the private equity funds for, you know, call it the last 20, 25 years is every time a really sophisticated, great management team went straight to the LPs, straight to the pension right. fund and said, why are we, you know, let's cut out their management fee. Let's cut out their, yeah. you know, back end carry on the funds and we'll just split it and you'll give me better terms on Every one of those went down in flames, yeah. you know, and so that was <laughs> right, wrong or indifferent. And I think a lot of it just had to do with what I was saying earlier in that, you know, when you feel like it's time to give me money, you probably shouldn't give me yeah. any money because everybody else is doing it. And, you know, when you feel like you don't want to give me money, that's when you should do it. I think that's what happened historically is these really talented management teams went straight to to pension funds, et cetera. And they just did it in the wave of so much capital hitting that ultimately right. the returns were, were disappointing and it was money flow type stuff, not necessarily performance of the assets. So yeah, no, you're right. I mean, that's part of, uh, part of having to, uh, re, I don't even know what the right word is. Remake yourself, uh, if you will, to figure out how to raise money. Another thing that's going to pop up too, because you you have no idea what this is, but let me educate you as the right, old guy. Right. There's this thing called inflation. Yeah, and I know you've never seen it in your career. You have no We're idea it what now. it's real. Yeah, I mean we now. we had it back in the uh, we had it back in the 70s, and like historically, the greatest inflation hedge has always been oil. It's dominated right, right. in dollars, global commodity, deep deep liquid market it's it's always performed very well as an inflation hedge it's not going to surprise me if uh if you see just like you were saying hey private equity firm let's get rid of the management teams wouldn't surprise me if you see private equity popping up saying hey let's get rid of oil and gas all together yeah let's just go out and give folks uh exposure to straight to the commodity yeah. Because why do you want to mess around with drilling these wells, potentially polluting, dumping oil here or there? All you really do is care about the price of right. oil right. when you're trying to hedge inflation. So yeah, there's going to be a lot of, lot of struggle there. And you know, at the end of the day, I mean, all these folks are going to morph to energy technology, clean technology, whatever we want to call it, simply because they can raise money there. Who so. do you think the? Who do you think the? I have a bias. I think I have the answer to who I believe it is. But who's the winner? in private capital right now from what everything this theme that's going on like in terms of on the oil and gas side and, I, and i'll give you my bias just to tell you what the way i'm framing this question is i think like family office or like people that don't have maybe the same mandates that can be opportunistic like do you think this could be their time to really like go after it and get after projects that maybe the traditional private equity guys are just going to turn their nose up on i mean that's that's historically who i mean Capital or uh, what is it? Nature abhors a vacuum. So, I mean, if you don't have capital and you have good projects there, you, the interesting thing though is have the have assets not traded hands because there's a lack of capital or because we haven't really just priced out what should be the appropriate mechanisms for for buyers and sellers to agree because. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's like you say that that oh yeah, family offices will be right there. Well, what are they going to back? Because we yeah. really haven't seen much in the way of of transactions being being done. So, 
Yeah, no, you would you would definitely you, you know what's so funny is like Bloomberg. Yeah. I mean, his family offs does oil and gas yeah. stuff. They don't tell anybody that. Right. But I mean, they don't. yeah. But yeah, I'll, no, I'll tell right. you one the other day, and I won't pick them out or call them out, but there's a uh, private equity kind of a mid sized one that, uh, and they, they would know who I'm talking about. They heard me say this, but basically, I was talking to them, and they're like, oh, yeah, our biggest, you know, backers like Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And I'm like, wait, what? They're, it's like, <laughs> yeah, that's the, the one funding all the oil and gas stuff that we do. And I'm like, that's kind of wild that that's. That, that's just head scratcher but you know if look if you're somebody that has to manage a large amount of money then in theory you need to have exposure to all different kinds of things and the reality is is that oil and gas isn't going away and that's the biggest thing that i feel is one of the big benefits of this podcast or you're doing a podcast with the guys that are out here trying to have conversations is that we can talk through some of these topics and say look no matter what it doesn't matter if we start to switch everything to solar and wind and do all these things today there's going to be a long tail on hydrocarbons. I mean, gas particularly, like we need, we're, th if we can get rid of paper or plastic straws or whatever, even though paper straws are miserable, oh. but that's not going to make an impact. It gets back to this whole Tesla thing, right? Like they need plastic to make those cars. Like we need natural gas and petrochemicals and ethylene and propylene and all these things. And that's just not going to go away because they make our lives better. This podcast gear is made out of it. That backpack that I packed everything in, you know, the North face, all these things. And so, when you hear these sweeping kind of talking points and narratives of that we're oil and gas is going away, it's a dead industry. It's like, that's just not even in the realm of factual possibility or accuracy. It's going to be there somewhat. Now people will argue, well, we're going to get rid of it for transportation. We're going to get rid of it for power generation. So, you know, Boeing and Airbus don't even have patents on electric planes yet. So, I mean, yeah, it's, right. not, it's, like, it's, not, it's not like it's sitting there back there. No. Oh, next week we're going to launch the 737 electric. Yeah. So, I mean, that transportation's not going anywhere. And so it's when I hear these things, you know, I don't know if you've ever had this, but I've had people like send me hostile stuff like on LinkedIn. I had a guy send me like a hostile message being like, you know, you need to really get with the program. Fossil fuels are dying. Like it was something I made some post that was like fairly benign. I basically said, I can't remember. It was like, I rarely take like political or like even outrage type stuff. Usually it's like, I'm just trying to be funny with memes or whatever, have conversations right. like this. Like the one time I posted something about fossil, it was like, I quoted Elon Musk and he, uh, he, Elon Musk put out a thing and he was like, people criticize space travel, but what they don't realize is that space travel means hope to so many people. And I was like, people criticize fossil fuels. People don't realize is fossil fuels mean hope to so many people. <laughs> right. And some guy like messaged me and was just like, you're, you guys are worse than the Slackler family or whoever the ones that did heroin or uh, oxycotton right that? and he was yeah. like you know uh, all these things just basically calling me evil and saying all this stuff and i'm like you know didn't really want to even want to argue or say anything because it felt like this guy was more religious than he was like factual based arguments but that's what there are a lot of people that just believe in their heart of hearts that oil and gas is going away it's going away oh the the greatest thing that the environmentalists did is they actually convinced people that it's evil oil companies not allowing wind and solar to do it all. I mean, that, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's like the right. greatest thing they, they, uh, they ever did. And so, yeah, no, I mean, and we can use some of Alex Epstein's uh, language on this. I mean, it really is morally wrong to deny people cheap energy. Yeah. I mean, you're burning shit and dung and right. that sort of stuff, right. and you go to hydrocarbons, all of a sudden you got 2x, uh, life expectancy, definitely the higher. So that said, though, I, I think the one thing we, we do have to do 
is we as an industry have to acknowledge that burning of hydrocarbons led to more CO2 in the air. And we've taken the, the environment from call it 300 parts per million right. to call it 425. And we do know if we hit a thousand parts per million in our atmosphere, we're all punch drunk, right? I mean, the astronauts on Apollo 13, when the CO2 levels went up, got <laughs> on the verge of punch drunk. So we do know that. So we do know we have to be doing something about it. The, right. The, the hope would be is is that we could at least be constructive with uh, with the other side and whether it's figuring out ways to reduce consumption but not necessarily limiting lifestyle if there are ways we could you know carbon capture right. whatever whatever the case may be we do need to take it seriously yeah yeah it's you know it's one of those deals where we i've read that book recently uh unsettled have you seen that yeah. one it was pretty Kunin, good Kunin's book yeah. i read it too yeah, yeah. it's pretty good what i thought was interesting was just the lack of cohesion between the models and all these things and like the other thing that i thought was interesting was just the amount of it's just really hard to predict climate yeah. like it's really difficult there's a ton of variables and there's like fudge factors throughout and so just little tiny so I think when you hear about consensus consensus is that humans are having an impact consensus is that the planet's getting warmer where you don't have consensus is among these models what their predictions they can't get you take like historical data and plug it in it doesn't equal what's happening today but they want to project it out into the future so it's like one of these things where you'd read the articles and the headlines and it's like it is unequivocal it is we are 100 consensus that these things are happening like look humans are making an impact co2 is going up uh, but I just don't know that it's just so hard to like weed through all of it and see like, what is the real timeline? You know, what are the actual consequences for this? Uh, you know, I grew up with, and I've said this before, kind of the OG science, science or climate scientist, which is my dad was a geologist. So when I was little, I learned about, you know, all these ancient, you know, eons of dinosaurs and all these different periods. And when the atmosphere had 25 X, the CO2 and plant life was everywhere. It was a tropical rainforest planet. And, you know, animals grew to be like the size of buildings because there's so much food or that's what they right. think. Right. And so it's like an insects for the size of cars. And so the planet's been through some pretty radical climate up and down movements. And it didn't have to do with humans. Right. Because we weren't right. around. So the planet is going to the climate's going to change. It's been changing where, you know, I think a lot of it gets down to what is our impact? How do we mitigate that impact? Can we get to realistic goals and some of this ESG stuff back to the carbon offshoring that that's where i get frustrated it's like okay well for example let's go to a more natural gas-based system and i've said this a lot i'm biased so we need the byproducts like we talked about for the plastic and rubber and all these things we could do potentially couple it with sequestration that could get you know reduce a lot of carbon uh and we could make huge strides like if you look at like some of the models of where we need to get to we could kick the can or get way down the road hundreds of years down the road by doing quick win things that we have the technology the pipeline's already there and then there's like a report that came out this last week that said natural gas basically has no place in the energy transition. And they were, the report was blaming it on, they talked about blue hydrogen, but then they also talked about just methane leaks was there. That was the thesis. At the end of the day, it was like pipelines are leaky. And because of those leaky pipelines, we'll never be able to use natural gas in the energy transition. And I get back to, well, did you hear anything in the infrastructure bill about, you know, helping pipelines, giving incentives for pipeline companies to find methane leaks? Like I didn't hear anything about that. So it's like, Again, can we do something practical that can meet the goals? But like, I just see things getting pushed forward that I'm like, this isn't realistic. Yeah, no, I mean, I think the big one, and I talked about this at, at some point somewhere, is 
I mean, the big one is if the United States, China, and India could sit down at a table and the United States and some of our Western allies in Europe could just say, all right, China, all right, India, fair's fair. We got here first. We built our societies based on cheap energy. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to finance natural gas infrastructure in your right. two countries. Just stop with the coal. Yeah. Just please stop right. with the coal. Right. I mean, that that actually would be constructive. Yeah. That would be real. I'm generally speaking a free trader. Even I could live with kind of that in terms yeah. of, of doing something. Because, yeah, coal's the big enemy in China. They're building a lot of it. I mean, go, like you said, go start putting uh, LNG import terminals in other countries, these other countries. Hey, we're going to go make an investment in an LNG import terminal here. We're going to go make an investment in a pipeline over here. And we're going to help, you know, ship. Again, we're talking our book, but we're going to ship American gas that's cleaner and that we can have, you know, standards that other countries don't have. And it's a difficult problem. I mean, 51 or something percent of the, didn't China just surpass the Western world in terms of emissions are like at 50 percent or something like that. I saw a stat. I want to yeah. misquote it, but they're basically equal to all the other Western countries, just China in terms of what they're admitting. So it's like we can do whatever we want here, but unless you have other people on board, I mean. Well, and, and the, I didn't see that stat. But the one I know is just trajectory. I mean, we've at least done a decent job in the United States right. kind of flattening the curve. We're still huge polluter, but at the same time, we've flattened it. China's, you know, right. skyrocketing like up. this. So. Well, they want Chinese people to have cheap energy. They want their people to prosper. They're trying to – China has a lot of restrictions around, uh, you know, it being a communist country. So they put their people under a lot of strain in terms of the restrictions over there. But – the flip side is what they're trying to do is deliver on a quality of life thing. And it's like, look, I'm going to control you through all these other things because they're a very restrictive country, but they also want prosperity because if you have restrictions and non-prosperity, then you have revolt, right? So right. they want it to be, yeah, we're going to be this communist lockdown type country where we control everybody's lives, but they also want them to have prosperity. That way people are happy. And so they're going to do what they think is the best thing to get prosperity, which is probably cheap energy. And they're going to push that forward. Uh, so, and we could talk on that topic for a long time, but just circling back to private equity, because I know that's your background and it's something that fascinates me. Like, you know, guys that are in these teams right now, I think there's a lot of just the sentiment's not real great. You're hearing about things like smash codes and this last year has been brutal, um, in 2020. And, you know, you'll hear stories like a company, uh, doing really well. They got, you know, got good cash flow. They don't have a lot of debt. The sponsor says they're happy with them. That sponsors oh, by the way, we're going to buy a deal from this other sponsor down here in a different basin. But as part of that deal, we're going to have to smash co you with one of their companies because we got to get this other bigger deal done. And the management team's like, wait, what? I'm getting smash code with our rival over here. And so there's just, that's just an anecdotal story of something I heard without naming names, but it's like a lot of stuff goes on. And I feel like people are walking away and not having a great taste in their mouth with some of these uh, deals that they did over the last five years. Yeah, and this is a little bit of a soapbox for me um, because, you know, generally speaking, there are usually ulterior motives right. to uh, to these smash codes happening. And let me peel back the onion and let let me make a differentiator. Okay, if you're a private equity fund and you have twenty teams, and so there are twenty different buckets, right? If you have, if you go to ten teams managing those twenty buckets, okay, you've saved money on GNA. Right. You're potentially right. more efficient. So that I think is actually a worthy endeavor 
that private equity firms should do every day in terms of just dollars are precious. Let's not make sure we're not overspending on, on, uh, on management teams. I hate that from the humanity side of it, but equally is the fireman whose pension plan you're investing right. needs to have money when he or she retires. So let's make a difference between management teams, managing buckets, and then let's talk about actually merging the buckets together. Mm -hmm. So you have these 20 different buckets, you go to 10 teams and then you merge the buckets together. So you only have 10 buckets. That's actually bad because there's no reason to merge two buckets. Because if you merge two buckets, number one, you're paying lawyers to do that. Yeah. So you have leakage from the fund right, of, uh, right. of doing that. And I think the reason that most of these buckets get merged is so that private equity firms can clean up their track records. So right. if you have a fund with 15 um, companies in it and five of them are 4X, five of them are uh, 2X, and five of them are zero, and then you have a, a fund that's 10 um, companies and all 10 of them are 2X. And you can achieve that by merging the 0X into the 4X, right? Right. right. Turns into a 2X. That's perceived as a less volatile fund. So you're more likely to, to uh, attract investors. It's the same freaking fund. You just right. spend a lot of legal dollars merging right. those buckets yeah. together. So I would always... I, I would sit there and when you watch these private equity funds merge the buckets together, if I'm an investor, I'm like, okay, why? Yeah. Cause at the end of the day we sell assets, right? So right. It, it's not like you got to merge buckets to be able to, to sell it. So I'd always be very skeptical on why are we merging? Cause the whole reason, like I said, is you're cleaning up track record. The other reason you're doing it too is just to make it sound like you're doing something right you know a lot yeah, of yeah, yeah. a lot of life is when you go out and talk to people well we've got this strategy here we're doing this we're merging we're saving all this gna it's like no you're just doing it to yeah. do something right kind of kick the can down the road so yeah i was never a i was never a fan of merging but every once in a while it makes sense like if you had if you had two different buckets managed by the same management team and they had a rig running and you were using the balance sheets of the two buckets and you would drill three wells here because you had the money and then you'd move the rig over here and drill three wells because you had the money. If you had an inefficient drilling schedule because you had two separate balance sheets, okay, that makes sense to merge right. the buckets. But generally speaking, it's very rare when that does. It's it's private equity folks playing yeah. games. Yeah. See, they kick you out of the club. You have no more reason to, to, <laughs> to, to yeah. hide, hide the facts. Right. Well, for sure. And I mean, you see a lot of it too, just around the whole times. So one thing that I bothers me is like with midstream. So I've been more focused again on midstream. And what I've looked at is that a lot of guys, there was a playbook and that playbook was get acres dedicated, build a plant, you know, try to then flip out of that uh, to somebody that needed a plant or that you got the deal and they didn't. So a strategic would buy you. And the problem with the, that's the field of dreams model, right? A lot of times right. you, you build it and they will come, the volume will come, you'll be the first mover, et cetera. Problem with that is that plants and a lot of these mystery facilities, they have high fixed costs. Like to keep a plant running, you got to have four crews, 24 seven people out there. These plant operators aren't, they're highly skilled, highly paid people. Um, 
you know, to you build hundreds of miles of pipe, that's hundreds of miles of right away. You got to upkeep and do one calls for forever. I mean, yeah. the system is there forever. You have to maintain that right away. That's a high fixed cost. And so we had this, you know, bonanza of midstream deals getting done, loading up on not just capital being spent, but continual fixed costs that are going to go out into the future to keep these assets running. Problem with that is when you have high fixed costs and you have low volumes that are going down, runways can get short. Couple that with some debt, the runways can get really short. And you look at these companies and you're like, why aren't they exiting these investments? Why aren't they selling these plants or shutting the plants down? And because you look at it, and you say today it's going to be worth the most it's ever going to be worth probably, unless drilling in a big way comes back to some area that is now out of favor. But if that happens, cool, maybe they can salvage this. But if that doesn't happen, this is probably the most this asset's ever going to be worth. Exit, pull the ripcord on that asset. They're not doing it. Last year was the least amount of midstream deals done since like 1996. This year, there's been very few deals done. Any Some deals with the downstream component are getting done because people want downstream, but midstream, the deals aren't getting done. And you're like, why aren't they doing it? These things, the noose is getting tighter and tighter and tighter. What's these incentives back to the private equity side? It's like, no one wants to take a mark. No one wants to show that. No one wants to take a write down. No right. one wants to stop the management fee on it, right? Because if I've got $200 million invested there and I'm getting a 1% or 1.5% right. management t- fee, that's 2 to 3%. I mean, that's 2 to $3 million a year. Can you talk yourself into, you know, some things break right? It's going to be worth 1.5% more next year. Yeah. So let's just go ahead and hold it. You know, and so, yeah, I think it's Charlie Munger. Yeah. Show me your incentives and I'll show you your behavior. So, of course, they're not. Yeah, of course, they're not selling that. But but like that's where you get frustrated because you look at it as someone who for a while we were uh, and still try to be opportunistic around potentially buying midstream assets. And you're like, we can't buy these things because they're worth less than their cost basis, their equity cost basis. No one's going to sell it for that. But then you look at it and you can make very real compelling arguments on paper that this is the best time for you guys to get out of this investment because it's losing money and it's going to be worth less. And then you just watch everybody cling on. And then you start to see a bunch of non-cash deals and mergers. And again, maybe there's some synergy there cutting G&A, but like you kind of kicked the can. It didn't really, I mean, I don't know. I just, I've been seeing to your point, what are the incentives and it's driving behaviors. And it, to me, it seems like there's a lot of inefficiencies that are going to be in. Yeah, you know, Bomber and I talked about that on a, on a podcast, call it, you know, three or four or five months ago. It's how can you force someone to do a deal? I mean, because clearly, if you went into a, drew a big enough circle and you consolidated all the assets in there, one plus one would equal three. Sure. And we, we had the wonder is if you're the consolidator, could you walk in with a contract? Hey, we will give you X amount of cash flow cash flow uh per year for that and all you have to do is exactly what we ask on that asset right you know if that means shut it down yeah yeah. you know and i I was wondering if that would do it because in effect if you had this contract of cash flow private equity firm doesn't have to sell that so Mm -hmm. they still charge their management fees right right um they could all they could somehow because if they're generating 10 million in cash flow a year they're not going to do it unless you give them 11 so they are sharing somewhat in the in the synergies and i don't know i wonder if that would work any better than hey let me buy you because you're right they're not going to take a cash a cash mark and uh and walk away from the asset but i don't know yeah, it's a it's a head scratcher. Let me ask you some just mechanical stuff around private equity that I personally am ignorant on, but that maybe you can shed, shed some light on me. 
And they, these, these may be dumb questions that anybody in the private equity world knows the answer to. I've just never worked at a I'm going to be as pompous as I can to firm. try to, uh, to try to answer them. How's that okay. sound? <laughs> so like when it comes to the management fees, how does it, like if you've got all the capital deployed and it's in these uh, vehicles, where's that fee coming out of? Where are you getting the money physically? Where's that cash flow coming from? Do you keep a reserve that's left over to charge your fees out of? Or like if you've raised X amount, I'm just, I don't understand so, how that so, works. Yeah, so we go out and raise a billion dollar fund, okay. let's say, uh, Chuck Maxco won. Okay. And we raise a billion dollars. You don't actually have a billion dollars in the bank. You, you, you have a partnership and you have the right to send each one of the investors a cash call letter it, saying, so if we're going to, if we're going to do a deal and we need a hundred million dollars, we're going to do a 10% cash call. Right? right. So we will send a letter out and generally speaking, investors have call it 10 business days to sure. wire in their money. Right. Similar to like if you're a team and you get a cap call, we have a project we want to invest on it. You cap call your PE guy and then everybody right. has to put their contribution and they're, they're cap calling back. So, as part of those regular calls, you're calling your management fees okay. as well. Gotcha. So that makes sense. At a billion dollar fund, we're, we're not getting 2%. We may be getting one and a half percent or so. So let's call it that $15 million a year. We're calling it generally, you prefer to call it around a deal as opposed to just sending, a, like, hey, sending a letter saying, hey, by the way, I need that you know $4 million this quarter for my right. management fees. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Because uh, those are just like the mechanics stuff that I just scratched my wonder about. What about like the management fees and of themselves? Like, is there a mandate of what they can be spent on? Like, let's just say that like you had $20 million a year in management fees, right? Right, And your staff cost you $5 million a year. Your, you know, other operating expenses was $3 million a year. So you've got $13 million left over. Does that just go to bonuses? Does that just go to whatever you want? Do you have to, is there some mandate on what you have to use it for? Does just like Chuck get to keep it all and Max and Chuck Co. Like how does it how does that work? <laughs> so back in the day, um, when you particularly around venture capital funds, because they were much smaller, right? Um, really what the management fee was designed to do was staff, rent, travel, sure. due diligence uh, right. fees, uh, due diligence expenses, but then no, they're they're just a profit center. So in your example, you know, if we had twenty million dollars worth of management fees, and we had our staff of, you know, call it five million, and we had rent and travel and other deal expenses of, you know, an additional three, eight million, and so we've twelve million. You and I are rolling at six piece there, big guy. Yeah, dude, that's a pretty sweet deal. Yeah, and here's the cool thing: so you charge management. Generally speaking, you charge management fees for five years on the commitment amount to the fund. So in our case, that was a billion dollars, right? right? So we've got, and let's say we got 2%, even though at a billion, you, you probably wouldn't, but we got $20 million a year. We got $20 million a year for five years. Right. And so that's kind of cool. Let's say we roll into year two or three and we've, and this is, this is wild. Generally speaking, the, the fund documents say when we've committed 75% of the money, that doesn't mean we actually invested right. in anything. It means we told, you know, XYZ management team, you have a hundred million dollar commitment or a two hundred million dollar commitment, right. right? Right. When we've committed seventy five percent, we can go raise the next fund. Hmm. And so when we do that, you know, we're in year two to three of that first fund. We get another billion dollar fund. We got another twenty million a year coming right. in. Right. Right. And then what happens is 
after year five, it's no longer paid on commitments. It's paid management fees are paid on the lesser of fair market value or the cost basis of that investment. Mm. So generally speaking, fees get after year five, they get smaller. So you have large fees for five years, small fees. So the key is if you can always have two funds and large fees, mm -hmm. and then all your remaining funds are kind of in the smaller fees, that's when Chuck and Max are yeah. like rolling big time. Sounds like a heck of a deal, Chuck. Sounds like a good structure uh, for the private equity side of it. Uh, you know, hey, I didn't invent it. Yeah. You know, no. hey, so. look, don't hate the player, hate the game. Um, that's really interesting around that stuff. That's the stuff that like, it's, I don't, they don't broadcast. Like it's like you, no one in your private equity backers telling you these things. Like, oh, if yeah. you're some team, like you're not like, I can't I mean, ask the, those questions. The drug like, dealers not. not going on TV saying, <laughs> hey, hey man, here's how we sell this stuff. You know? Yeah. Uh, that's, uh, that's interesting to me. I just, there is a lot of that, the whole, that whole world, you know, and the other things that you look at behaviors too. And it's like, well, why am I always getting a bill for like, if you're a port co and your private equity sponsor is like, Hey, like let's, you know what, we're going to do our board meeting or we're going to do this thing. Like, let's go to a baseball game or let's go to this nice steakhouse or do this thing. And you're like, Oh, okay, cool. And it's like your first six months being funded and you're like having fun and doing all this stuff. And then you get like this $150,000 bill for the travel and all these things and all this allocated expense. And you're like, don't you guys charge management fees? Like, why is this? But I guess like if they bill it back to the port co, it comes out of that, those dollars, it doesn't come out of the management fee bucket. So that, 12 million that you said earlier doesn't become yeah. 11 we million we don't want to yeah we don't want to cut into our six apiece right yeah, right you don't want to cut into your six apiece you want to build the porcos and that's actually where the sec is spending some time these days because if if we charge a two percent management fee mm -hmm. and you and i like go and buy an 82 mouton rothschild for dinner and we yeah. use the management fee dollars the sec comes in and says Hey, investor, you knew they were charging 2%. Right. You know, tough. If we have the portfolio company pay for dinner, right? The investors are going, well, we didn't know y'all were going to drink Mouton Rothschild at, uh, at dinner. That's uncool. And the SEC's come back and shut down uh, some private equity billbacks, if you will, on Super Bowl tickets mm. and the things of the like. Cause it's like, hey, Investors didn't know they were they were stepping up for that. Right. So right. Well, the management team, uh, they got a clear hurdle on that now, right? Like that's yeah. got to flood through. That's got to flow through their waterfall, which sucks for them. And it's like you guys are making good management fees. Why not just pay it out of that instead of me having to now borrow that money? Basically. That would be my money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, uh, for sure. Well, this is hit on a bunch of the private equity stuff, and I, we're getting to an hour, but I wanted to real quickly, and this is a theme that I usually bring up at the beginning when I talk to other content creators. And I'm sure listeners may get tired of me bringing it up because I just want to hear about your journey and how things have been going and all that stuff. Because it's interesting to me personally because I've been doing it too. And I talk about that a lot of times at the beginning. So I try to talk more shop this time at the beginning. And then maybe, you know, if people are interested in hearing about this, they can uh, tune in in this back half. But just uh, how's the Chuck Yates Needs a Job podcast been going, man? The, uh, well, we're still on the air. Yeah, there <laughs> I mean, you go. So <laughs> we uh, do that. Nobody likes to hear themselves speak more than me. Sure. So, yeah. Sure. I don't know. Great. I like to hear myself talk too. So, ah, no way, dude. Love <laughs> this voice. Me, 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 me. <laughs> so, yeah, no, it's been a lot. It's, it's been fun. The, the, I really thought starting the podcast, it was going to devolve into Howard Stern of the oil and gas business. Yeah. I mean, I have a potty mouth. Yeah. You know, sure. I've, 
I peaked in sense of humor when I was a 13 year old boy. And so poopy jokes and duty <laughs> jokes, I really yeah, thought I was yeah. going to uh, be done, but you know, we've, we've had some folks on that have gone through some real stuff, you know? And uh, I mean, just a couple of weeks ago, Dave, David Hayes coming on talking about having testicular cancer and, you know, Jeff Davies came on and talked about the hedge fund he ran at Tudor Pickering Holt and that it didn't turn out the way he wanted. And, you know, my priest came on and we talked about a lot of stuff. So it's, it's turned out more serious than, yeah, than right. I thought, thought uh, it would do. And the other thing that I think similar along that, that I didn't appreciate was going to happen is, you know, you figure out, that when you come on a podcast and you talk about getting fired yeah, and, and all just the number of people that kind of reach out and go, dude, I really appreciate you saying it. Yeah. You know, it's, I'm struggling with this. You figure out every one of us on the planet is struggling with something. Sure. sure. And you got to be really careful what you say, because somebody somewhere is struggling with that issue. Right. And, and I never, actually thought I would grow up and quote unquote be an adult, but I've had to be an adult about a lot of stuff out there that normally I would have made a crude insensitive joke about. Now I like, before I hit send on a tweet, I'm like, okay, do yeah, I really want right. to say that? So yeah. yeah, it's been, been interesting. It's yeah. I feel that. I mean, for me, it's different in a lot of ways doing the content stuff. It's been positive. I think overall, um, I, like that you've had those more serious conversations. I don't know that I've done as had as much of that with me. I feel like I'm evolving with it. I've tried to be very industry focused, like kind of at first I was like nervous about doing this stuff. Right. So I felt like I need to be really professional and really, you know, and then it's gotten, you know, less, more, less stuffy and more kind of relaxed as I've gone on. Um, I've definitely felt the itch to explore a lot of different topics like the energy stuff. I find that I keep saying the same stuff. Maybe that's just because I hear, you know, I know what I'm going to say, but I feel bad for like guests. I'm, or, I'm like, are they, or for listeners, I'm like, are they just hearing me ramble about the same crap over and over and right. over again? So there's a part of me that's being, uh, wanting to do more maybe outside of energy or just tackle different topics in energy, but it's been rewarding. And I think the networking has been the biggest thing, like the force networking, just like forcing me to have a conversation and be like, Hey Chuck, like, let's hang out. Like, let's get together. Like, I just, I wouldn't have had an opera. I wouldn't have done that. Right. Like, um, I mean, I'm sure there's people you're interacting with that are just your friends that are coming on. So I've done a lot of that too. Cause it's right. fun to have your friends come on, but at the same time, has it forced you to like get outside of your comfort zone at all? Has it forced you to do force networking? Like what, what about the growth aspects of it? Have there been any? I think the thing I've been drawn to is, you know, if you think about it, I mean, there are 50 people, right. That'll go on inner every energy podcast, sure, right. And, sure. you, and what, you know, they have their whole shtick that kind of work, work through and all. And so trying to create something outside that box and find what I'm, and what I'm finding is, finding new stories to tell yeah. is actually pretty tough, but it's pretty rewarding. Yeah. You know, it's been, I think having Ashley Watt on and talking about what's going on on her Antina ranch yep. with Chevron. And look, I really am pro energy. I, I mean, energy loud, energy proud, but at the same time, I think if we don't police ourselves, no one else is going to believe us, sure. trust us. And ultimately, I really think that's kind of the core of the problem. 
Um, look, there's always going to be extremists on both sides and you're not going to be able to get along with those folks, but we just have to kind of capture the middle. Right. You know, and I don't think we can do that if we're bad actors and we cover things up that just never seems to, to work out. Yeah. So. That's a good point. Well, it's one of those deals that it, the other thing I've found with the podcast stuff is that it's, it's grindy, man. It is a grind like every single week. Did you realize the amount of commitment that you're getting into when you first started? Yeah, well, see, it? I'm fundamentally the laziest person on the planet. <laughs> I mean, I, I really lazy. So yeah, no, I mean, finding, finding a guest, I actually try to research up on stuff just yeah. to, to make sure we get some content and we cover some ground that, that other, other folks may not have, and then promoting it. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm joking that, uh, that I've got undergrad from rice, magna cum laude graduate, MBA from yeah. rice and the like, and I'm out making Colin his short memes to generate yeah, right. traffic for the, for the podcast. So there's a, there's a whole business side of trying to promote the thing. That's, yeah. that's just crazy. The, uh, what's interesting is like what we talked about it before this, we talked about it before is like what catches on, what doesn't catch on. And I've talked to my brother has a podcast and he's very much just like his thing is like, just try not to get sucked into the gimmicky stuff that you think will be like, he's basically like, just do good content, create good content. Good things will happen. Whereas like I'll get cynical because I'll see, and this is, I'm going to pick on, I won't call the person out, but there's somebody that started an energy Twitter, like around the time I started my Twitter and my stuff's all just either my content or just me saying whatever, or maybe some memes. Uh, this other person started one and all they do is cross post stuff that they see from like LinkedIn. They'll see like a cool video or something that they follow on Reddit and they'll just post other people's stuff and be like, look, this is a drilling rig in Dakota, North Dakota, or this is a whatever. Like they just take other stuff that's gone viral and they post it on their feed and this guy is like blown up to whatever 10k followers in the same period of time and like nothing he's put out is his it's nothing's original it's all just ripping other people's content off and i'm like he's crushing i mean his numbers have got to be crushing anything i've done and so it's like you get kind of jaded you're like that's a hack right he's hacked it he's hacked right. the system he's figured out if i just take other people's stuff that's really popular and post it on my thing i can get a lot of views and so it's just hard to stay the course and like not get jaded and it's like and I've talked to the Wildcatter guys a little bit about some of the things they've done in the past where they were really passionate about a project and they put a lot of time and effort into it and put it out and it like bombed. Like it didn't get yeah, the, the, the oil football connection. Yeah, right. I mean, guy, I hear about that every day at the office <laughs> around digital Wildcatters. Um, no, but you're, you're right. I mean, that's one of the things Jake and Colin have always preached is make the content you're proud right. to, to make and let the cards kind of follow what they make. Because I will say this. I think the carbon capture gate episode that that we did, I mean, we were in the studio for call it 24 hours on that. I mean, we it was the whole setup on that. I don't know if you listened to that one was that basically a Russian scientist had come up with carbon capture. It worked on all the hydrocarbons in the world except Russian oil because <laughs> there was this element of, I think it was called centenium or something that's right. not a naturally occurring element, but it's a byproduct of nuclear waste. And so the Soviets had set off bombs everywhere in Russia, so their oil was infected with it. So the carbon capture wouldn't work on Russian oil. Therefore, the Russian oil in the new world was going to be uh, in effect, worthless. Yeah. And uh, anyway, so Putin had the scientists killed. 
I mean, we cut in, we cut in a board member of Schlumberger giving a speech. We had a CNN report because there actually was a, a, a bomb explosion in a munitions plant in Russia. We had Putin speaking. I mean, we went and Googled what does a dial tone actually sound like in Russia yeah. and used yeah. that. I mean, it was, it was this incredible episode. I thought the science behind it was decent. As I like to say, I wrote the greatest X-Files episode ever created. We dropped it on April 1st. I mean, you know, April Fool's. It's one of my lowest downloaded yeah. podcasts. And I I mean it's 20 <laughs> minutes. I didn't even make it a long painful painful thing. So yeah, but you, you just put, you, put you your, just never know. You put your time into it and so there's this part and I don't know if this is a good analogy, but if for some reason it popped into my head. I've seen that movie Chef uh, with John uh, you know what I'm talking about where he does like the John what's his last name? I'm going to get it wrong. Uh, but it's the movie where there's a chef and he falls from grace. He does like, a, he thinks he's direct messaging somebody and he accidentally tweets him and he blows up and he gets canceled. And so he just goes back to being like a, uh, having a food truck. Anyways, if you uh, haven't uh, seen it, uh, you uh, haven't uh, seen uh, it. Uh, and so there's this part in the movie where his son is helping him and he's divorced, I think. And so he's spending time with his son and he's helping him in the food truck and they, and it starts to blow up and go viral. And this food truck's getting really popular. And so he's kind of getting his reputation back right. and he's doing what he loves. And his son is making like a melt, like a, uh, a sandwich melt and he like messes it up kind of burns it and anyways goes back and hands it to the client like before he's gonna hand it to the customer the dad grabs him he's like what are you doing he's like this sandwich is you know it's, it's messed up and he's like well i'm just trying to get it out we're just trying to we got all these people and i'm just trying to do what i need to do to keep going and he goes look this is all you have like this is everything this sandwich is your world this is all we have and you have to care give it that care and attention and so it's like with the content stuff Again, I don't know if I can tie this together, but it popped into my head. It's like sometimes you just want to put out the easy, like the easy low effort meme thing that you know is going to get 20 likes or the right. you know, or the outrage post that you know is going to rile up the base. But at the end of the day, like your content's all you have. Like put the love into that sandwich, put the you know, the effort into that. And if it doesn't hit like you want it to hit, like it's still your content. It's like your art. Like you cared about it. Like you obviously are passionate about that episode. So it gets back to like, yeah, that other guy may have like blown me away and has way more followers but he's he's not he's not created anything he's just ripping other people's stuff off and he's put zero effort or any type of soulless basically he's just like copying other people's stuff and posting it so it's like i might be spending all that time on that sandwich and making it perfect and it may only get 10 likes or five likes or one like but that was my baby and that's all i have so you just got to do what you got to do it's kind of how i try to view it yeah no it, so i had country music singer Lindsay l on yeah. the podcast and we talked um Oh, we had fun at first, but then we got pretty serious. She's a survivor. We talked about that. She had done, she had come out being a survivor in People Magazine, August of 2020. Right. So it had been a story, but we did it from the framework of I'm a father, and she didn't tell her dad for seven years. And great relationship with her parents, great parents, but. It was my question is, okay, what do I need to do so my daughters will tell me if something right. like that that happens? And she walked through it, and it was ground. She'd never been asked that before by any of the media. And I think it was really good content, really constructive content if you're a father. And the other thing we did on that podcast is, uh, you know, Bobby Bones isn't playing her music, and Bobby is her ex-boyfriend, and okay. Bobby Bones is the most influential person in yeah. country music, right? And, you know, in my mind, that's a big deal. You shouldn't yeah. lose your career because your relationship broke right. up. 
And so I asked the question, you know, and I said it and I threw an F-bomb on it. You know, why the fuck is Bobby not playing your music? And we had a discussion about it. That's something that the national media, the Nashville media has not said. Right. They have not right. asked that question. And, you know, some unemployed podcast host down in Houston did it. But again, not huge downloads. Never broke a story on that, right. but something I can be really proud of as a piece yeah. of content. So, well, it was the content, and you put your effort into it, um, and it's something that I've found. I've always tried to be a bit of a creative when I was younger. I liked music. I liked uh, writing a little bit in terms of writing music, uh, not writing. Not a good technical writer, but I just have enjoyed in my life trying to create. And then as I got older, I didn't do a lot of it anymore. You know, you should yeah. work all the time. And so what I found with this stuff is that there is an element of creation to this. And that is, there's something in my, in me that feels really good about it and whether, you know, to continue to do that. And I have that in me and I think you obviously have it in you, but there's something there. Like you like creating, you're creating with this. And so it's, it's cool. And I think I'm growing personally from it. I bet you are too, whether you see it or not, I'm sure you are like you're growing. Well, 95, I didn't have this perspective until call it 48 hours after Kane fired me 95 to 97, 98% of my day at Kane was stuff. I'll, I'll call it this way stuff. I inherited. Yeah. Right. I mean, we were doing it this way because natural gas partners did it that way. We were doing it this way because that was the cane way. Right. I mean, in terms of actually having a creative uh, new twist on something, it was incredibly rare. So it is nice to have kind of a clean palette to do that every week yeah. with a uh, with a podcast as opposed to, you know, same old, same old mundane that's the way we do it because that's the way we do it. I bet it works different parts of your brain. You know, they talk about getting older and you get into these routines. And one thing that I've read, I don't know that I can't explain it to you scientifically, but I read this deal that said that the reason why in some ways time seems to get faster and faster and faster as you get older is because your brain has different modes. And when you're learning new things and when like when you're a child or a kid, everything's brand new. So you're like right. having to absorb it all. And so that's right. why time seems slower because you're constantly in this mode in your brain where you're having to take in information, you're having to evolve, you're having to learn. It's all new. And then when you get older, you're just on the freeway every day at your office every day, doing yeah. the same thing every day. And your brain switches to this other mode where it just kind of cruise controls. And so I think that this having this thing where you got to always have to think up a new topic or come up with a new guest or figure out a way to uh, enhance the content. It's forcing you in ways to get outside of what you just described where you're just in that monotony of the normal stuff. And like, has to be good for you, I think. I mean, creation has to be good for you. Yeah, I think that. And and the other thing, too, is just a whole lot of fun to get to yeah. talk to really smart, interesting people it is fun. every week. You yeah, know, I mean, it's really it's, fun. I mean, I, I had on Pete Stahl, the lead singer of the punk band Scream. Yeah. And, you know, one of the interesting aspects of Scream is their second drummer was 18-year-old Dave Grohl. Yeah. And so, I mean, the the Foo Fighters song "My Hero" was written about Pete, and to get him to come on the podcast, I mean, we had to edit the podcast. That's probably the most editing we did because every other line was like, "Oh, dude, that's so cool!" I just fanboyed <laughs> on him the whole time. But yeah, you know, it's yeah. fascinating here hearing his stories. So yeah, it's it's a lot of fun to be able to sit around and just talk to really interesting people. It is fun. And uh, that's the part that I enjoy it. And I said I was wanting to do more. And you've you've just done it within your. I think the cool thing you did was have your podcast title be broad enough to where you can do whatever you want. 
I know we talked about it and you've said that the wildcatters gave you the advice that you're an energy expert and that that's always probably going to get the most views. Maybe. I mean, why can't you just be an expert in interviewing people and having great conversations? That's something you could become an expert in if you flex that muscle uh, enough. And so the fact that you've been able to switch in and bring these other topics in is something I'm jealous about because I just find that having great conversations with interesting people is just fun. It's just fun to do. Well, you know, what was pretty wild is, is David Hayes of Natural Gas Partners came on and we talked energy, but the thing I got the most response by of people picking up is they loved our baseball discussion yeah. because he grew up with Jose Cruz Jr. Who's the new baseball coach at Rice. David played baseball at Rice. And so kind of two aspects of talking about baseball I got millions of DMs about, you know, in terms of people going, holy cow, that was really cool is um, one thing they did a study and what they found is that great hitters in baseball generally came from the South. Hmm. And the explanation there was you can play baseball year round. So they're yeah, hitting more. Right. So they do it. Great pitchers generally came from the North. And the thought there was, you know, the guys played hockey in the winter and then they played baseball in the summer. So they didn't over pitch their arms. Oh, yeah. And that's actually been adopted now because you see all the pitch counts and, and the like. But that was something that a, a study just popped up. So people love that talk. And then the other thing I think that was really interesting that David Hayes talked about when we were talking baseball is Wayne Graham was the legendary historic coach at Rice. Um, you know, we won the College World Series in 2003. We made the College World Series multiple times. I mean, arguably as great a college baseball coach as there's, there's been. And one of the things he always preached is you maximize the effort of your superstars because your scrub, they're working as hard as they can because they know they can get cut. Your superstars are the ones that coast. And that's a lesson for life. That has right. nothing, you know, that, that can go broad beyond baseball and yeah, so trying sure. trying to pull stuff like that out of conversations i think is pretty interesting when you when you i always i always learn something every podcast and and it's going back and reflecting on that stuff that's pretty cool yeah all right well i think uh we got this nape here we got things i got to run to things you got to run to things last topic uh, favorite say, favorite nape story? Any nape story that you can share that's safe enough for work, or it doesn't have to be safe enough for work. Yeah, whatever. Exactly. <laughs> what, what do you got? All right. So one of my favorite, I got two favorite nape stories. One, I mean, it started at the Weston Oaks Hotel in the Galleria, and it started in a conference room, and you literally had fifteen geologists actually pitching prospects. Yeah. And uh, anyway, so early days in that, I went. And there was a guy who had mapped a prospect up and um, anyway, he was able to sell it. It's a dry hole. Comes back the next year, actually redrew the high, <laughs> the high point yeah. and said, here's where we need to drill, you know, basically an offset to the right. Yeah. He sold the prospect again. Yeah. Next year, and it was a dry hole. Mm. He came back the next year, I swear to God, and drew, no, here's the structural high. We've got two down dip. Uh, yeah. where we had oil shows. Now we have control. Now we have control. <laughs> and he sold the same prospect four years and it became comical because I talked to him each year. Yeah. And I was yeah. like going, dude, I, I saw this. And he goes, yeah, 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 yeah. Just don't tell anyone. Yeah. 
So that was a great story, uh, and I loved watching that over the year because it was almost like he had the same map and he was erasing the, the pencil. Yeah. And then one year, and it was the crazy year, it was probably, I don't know, it was maybe maybe it was winter of, of 2007. I don't know if you know who John Linker is, but he was a longtime energy investor, and he comes walking out, and I go, hey, John, how's it going? Because I was about to walk into Nate. Right. And he goes, man, it's so freaking great in there that even the bankrupt companies have two booths. <laughs> I was like, all right, John. Yeah, that's good. That's good. I only have one, and I tweeted about it. I mean, I've got others, but the one that sticks out to me, the nape that uh, is in my mind or that I've always thought about is one year I had. It was like when we first started Ancova, our company, and I had a lot of pressure on trying to grow the business and just do outreach and networking. And it was in 2016. So the industry wasn't doing great. Really. It's been one downturn. We started in 14. So it's been right. downturn after downturn, but I just was trying to network and had meetings set up and had been focused on Nate and had had just like, you know, and it wasn't even the conference. It was the meetings and it was the right. people I was trying to interact with. Right. And so I'd done a lot of work to set up all these meetings. And I think I had it pretty packed schedule. It was like every day for two days, and then you had the happy hours and dinner. So it was like, I was cramming in as much as I could. And it was two nights before Nape. Uh, and I just, it was like this terrible stomach ache and just could not shake it, could not shake it. And was uh, just really sick. And my wife was like, you need to either go to the hospital or just shut up. Cause I'm tired of hearing about it, you know? And I was in the other room just like, you know, balled up. Like, so I ended up, we made it through that night and then got to the day before Nape. And I had to have my, we had kids and I had to have my mom drive me to the, doctor and they were like your appendix is gonna burst so you need to go oh, and get no this way. taken out so my mom drove me over to the hospital and uh, got my appendix removed and i think i got it removed at like 11 a.m that next day and then so i got it it's a real quick surgery and i got out at like i was back home by like two o'clock or something they just take it out through right. like your belly button basically and i asked the doctor i was like well how long am i out and he's like usually like a couple of days and you can be pretty much back to what doing what you're doing and i was like man i got this conference i got this thing i gotta go to and it's all this stuff set up and I ended up just like getting on the flight the day after and just coming down here and like had an opinion. It was like all swollen and I was on like, you know, pain <laughs> pills. But like, I just felt this pressure, you know, when you're an entrepreneur and you have like, nobody else is going to do it for you type of thing. It's right. like, if I don't, if I cancel all these and we ended up, one of the guys that we met with, uh, we ended up getting that business and it was a client that was a great client for us and it worked out. But people were looking at me when I told them I just got my appendix out the day before and they're like, you're a psycho, dude. Like, yeah. what, are you, what are you doing down here? Uh, and I'm not trying to say that story to be hard. Like I was scared to come down here, but I just felt the pressure of, uh, having to make something happen. And, uh, and you know, some years are more fruitful than others. Sometimes you just come down here and you drink too much and party and you don't get a lot out of it. But, I wouldn't uh, know anything about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is fun. And it was fun. I'm glad we got to do it. This is a yeah. cool little mobile setup here. We made I it know, happen. I'm impressed. You got audience. If you're listening to this, as opposed to, uh, Looking at the video, man, there's all sorts of bright light, equipment, cameras, everything. This is cool stuff. You gotta be able to uh you gotta be able to figure it out and make these pods happen. I mean, like the interesting thing about podcasts is like this is overkill. Like we have great mics here, we're making it sound good, but you could just have a cell phone sitting up and could have just recorded it. But yeah. I mean, why not try hard? Why not yeah. make it try hard? There so. we go. I like it, particularly since I didn't have to set it up. <laughs> Chuck, thank you, sir. It was Absolutely, fun. Absolutely, sir. We'll it do was something fun. else again. All right, that's it.